listener production. Would you be a test dummy for a new drug for money? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing, a podcast about the science of everything. Every treatment or drug you buy at the pharmacy or are given in hospital has been tested in what's called a clinical trial. Today, I talked to Cosmos Magazine journalist Jacinta Bowler about what actually happens in these trials, how they can go wrong, and why so many drugs fail to make it to the finish line. Okay, Jacinta, we're talking about clinical trials. I imagine the process of trialing and testing has to be a rigorous process, right? I mean, you can't just sort of willy-nilly put something out or start using it without a guarantee it's going to do what it's supposed to. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a very bad idea. In the medical and biological space, there is no better scientific evidence than a successful clinical trial. So you're right, the process has to be incredibly rigorous. But look, this wasn't always the case. In the past, there have been cases where drugs were put through trials that weren't rigorous enough and terrible things happened. For example, we saw this with thalidomide. Thalidomide was a drug that was used for morning sickness and it ended up causing physical abnormalities in thousands of babies in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Now, there were clinical trials at the time, but they weren't super strict. And what happened with thalidomide led to the enforcement of stricter regulations of drug testing, marketing and dispensing. Okay, so there are actually two different types of clinical trials. Run us through those a bit more. Yeah, so first, there are clinical trials that are usually run by hospitals or universities. Mm -hmm. These look at an intervention or some non-drug product. So for example, a hospital might try out a new app for people with depression to track their symptoms. This would be used alongside normal treatment. Then there are the drug clinical trials. These are the multi-million dollar pharmaceutical drug trials. Usually they've been tested on animals such as rats or monkeys first so that we have some sort of data on what kind of effect the drug will have on humans. Sure. But it's important to note that rats and monkeys are not humans, so we still need to test them on ourselves. The people who participate in these normally get paid and they'll be paid anything from a few hundred dollars to thousands of dollars. Mm. It's important to note here that money is obviously an incentive for some. But this is a difficult thing to balance. Without money, no one would be interested in doing these sometimes dangerous trials. But with too much money, people might ignore any potential risks. Okay, so let's do a bit of a clinical trial walkthrough now. I want to get a sense of what's happening in the room. Where do you go? What happens once you're there? That sort of thing. Well, obviously, the exact process varies from trial to trial. But essentially, you would usually go to a hospital-like clinic. Mm -hmm. And this is really decked out. You've got your monitors, hospital-style curtains, name tags, trolleys with vials of blood, all of the good stuff. Depending on the trial, candidates can be asked to participate from a day to a month. And drug clinical trials are split up into three different phases. So what can you tell us about these phases? Basically, the phases are just testing drugs or treatments on incrementally larger groups of people. Phase one is what's called first in human trials. So this includes just a couple of dozen people to see if a drug or treatment is healthy or has any terrible side effects. Phase two looks at a larger group to see if the drug or product actually works. And then phase three is even more people. It can involve up to several thousand 
test if it's better than a standard treatment. So just the normal treatment that's already being used. At the end of the trial, the patient's health is routinely followed up. From there, the data is analysed, and this can take years. Interestingly, participants are never actually told the outcome of the trials, and they're none the wiser if their contribution created a new drug on the market or a failure. But look, while clinical trials work, there are instances where people can have adverse reactions to drugs or treatments, and in some cases, people have died. So adverse reactions and deaths as a result of clinical trials is a serious situation. What can you tell us about what's happened here, at least in Australia? So it depends on the drug, obviously. But examples of adverse reactions in clinical trials can range from small things like stomach issues, a rash, liver problems, and then obviously it can get really bad. The worst would be death. And we do know that this has happened, overseas especially. But I was writing a story on clinical trials for Cosmos and wanted to find out more about these cases of adverse reactions in Australia. I contacted the Therapeutic Goods Administration and they came back to me saying that this data isn't necessarily kept and they don't have the number of deaths as a result of clinical trials put together into a document or some kind of report. I also contacted the National Health and Medical Research Council. They have reports showing complaints on clinical trials, but they also said they don't have access to adverse reaction data. Finally, I contacted the Department of Health, and at the time of recording this, they haven't gotten back to me. Now, there will always be some level of risk associated with clinical trials, and patients are made well aware of that when they sign up. And I don't want to embellish the statistics here around how many people die. It is very few, and most of the time clinical trials are completely safe. Mm -hmm. However, I thought it was a valid question to try and ask. It's not going to be an issue in most clinical trials, but we should be able to know these details, especially adverse reactions and deaths. We should be able to know these details even if they are minimal. This is especially important at the moment, as Australia is on the road to engage in even more clinical trials. One of the reasons that's the case is because it's considerably easier to conduct clinical trials here than in the US. Why is that the case? Why is Australia such a clinical trial hotspot? Now, this mostly refers to early stage clinical trials. So stages one and two that I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. There's less bureaucracy and red tape here in Australia than in other places like the US to be able to get trials underway. Here in Australia, companies also have a lot of government support. There's a federal government tax rebate of up to 43.5% on all clinical trial and research and development costs. That means that companies will get almost half of their money back if they do research and development in Australia. But look, a lot of the trials that might take place in Australia, phase one and two, doesn't necessarily mean that it will result in the rollout of an actual drug. Things can often get stuck in phase three. Mm -hmm. That's because timeframes and costs can be immense. So for one successful drug, it can take 10 to 15 years and around 1 billion US dollars to develop and move through all three phases. It's also been reported that up to 90% of drugs fail clinical trials. So a lot of the time you get to phase three and you do that trial and at the end of all that, they realise that the drug just isn't better than what's on the market. It's either the same or not as good. And that makes it basically useless. 
So Jacinta, as we've been discussing, clinical trials are a crucial part of ensuring what drugs and treatments are available and fit for use. But a huge percentage of those trials don't actually make it to the finish line. What could we be doing to make more trials a success and get the right drugs and treatments to market? Yeah, it can be incredibly frustrating for scientists, the clinical trial participants, everybody, if all this money and time is spent on a clinical trial and it comes with no fruitful results. But in terms of what we can do to improve clinical trials, there are conversations about things like reusing old drugs. So drugs that have been on the market for ages and seeing if they can be repurposed into other things. So for example, thalidomide that I was talking about at the very start of this episode that resulted in physical abnormalities in babies, it was ultimately repurposed into a drug for leprosy. We could also select better drug candidates. So identifying the best people for a particular clinical trial to test a certain drug or treatment. Related to that is to make sure there's more diversity in clinical trials. We don't just want straight white men doing all of the clinical trials for obvious reasons. But look, while clinical trials are always going to be tricky, they're really critical. If we have more drugs and treatments available on the market, we're able to personalize and tailor them to individuals. And that's because not everyone will respond the same to certain drugs. A really good example of this is that 60% of patients don't respond to their first antidepressant. So even if there are shortcomings in clinical trials and they don't always end with good results, they're hugely important to broaden the drug pool. Jacinta Bowler is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. This episode was based on Jacinta's article, How Do Clinical Trials Work?, which was featured in Cosmos Weekly. You can read it by subscribing to Cosmos magazine. Just head to cosmosmagazine.com. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Matt Nikolic. Our executive producer is Carla Arnold. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time.